Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with Fenton Bailey, co-founder of World of Wonder and producer of RuPaul's Drag Race, about his new book, Screen Age, how TV shaped our reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race. We also speak with Bon Appetit editor-in-chief Don Davis and editor Jennifer Hope Choi on the magazine's new travel issue. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a brilliant guest, Fenton Bailey, co-founder of production company World of Wonder. Responsible for iconic TV shows such as RuPaul's Drag Race, Fenton also produced Party Monster, one of my favorite films. He just released a new book, part memoir, part exploration about the importance of television. It's called Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race. Let's hear more from him. Really, it all began, you know, growing up, I loved TV. And uh, I didn't just love TV. I loved the TV that everybody else seemed to think was terribly trashy and bad for you. And, you know, I went to Oxford. I read English, so I had a, a very proper education and always felt that my choices were not exactly what one should do with that kind of a background because I love television. And, and when reality TV emerged, there was a sort of critical pile on, you know, so many negative books have been written about television and how it's the end of civilization and, and all that. And I just thought it was time to set the record straight. And it's interesting you mentioned trashy TV there, because I personally find that the so-called trashy TV can be profoundly human in a way uh, as well, kind of an emotional, it hits, it hits the spot in a way. It absolutely does. You know, I think television has been judged and found wanting because it isn't the movies. And so often when a new medium comes along, we evaluate it in terms of the old established medium. And television is not a smaller version of the movies. It's totally different. It is actually inherently, I believe, a reality medium, a documentary medium. You know, when the movies sort of big things up and you have glamorous stars, I think TV takes you behind the scenes and shows you real people, you know, because it's 24 seven, there's so many channels. There is a, a need to see more people than just a handful of Hollywood celebrities. And so as a result, TV has introduced us to all sorts of people who were invisible to us before, and we get the chance to see what their lives are like. So for that reason, I think, you know, one of the many reasons why TV is a magical, has been a magical transformation of our lives. You know, like, even now, here we are, you and I meeting via a screen. I mean, we are living in the screen age. And it just seemed to me that no one had really taken that into account. You know, I think sometimes when massive cultural changes happen, they do happen gradually. And so you don't always notice them. You know, it's like the eggs in the in the saucepan of water on the stove. It's gradually getting hotter and hotter, you know, like that. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Was that desire to see kind of even more representation on television and your passion, was that, that's why you found World of Wonder with uh, Randy Barbato? Was that back in 1991, right? Yes, it was last century. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, 
No, I think I, I think uh, Randy and I were really inspired by Manhattan Cable, the public access shows on Manhattan Cable, which were just made by, well, I was going to say ordinary people. That's not true. They were extraordinary people, but they just had the the nerve, I guess, and the initiative to make their own TV shows and and they had to be shown on TV. And that was an amazing thing that sort of inspired us. And uh, Randy and I did a, a public access show called Flaunt It TV. We, we only did a few episodes because I think we realized quite quickly we preferred being producers rather than on camera, you know. <laughs> so um, that's why we started World of Wonder. Not necessarily, Fernando, to, to increase representation, because that sounds very altruistic. Mm. We were just drawn to these incredible characters. And that was our very first show was Manhattan Cable, where we took clips from these public access shows and it became kind of a kind of a viral hit on Channel 4 in the UK, actually. So it was sort of YouTube before YouTube, you know? And talking about incredible characters, I mean, your career, I mean, we will talk about RuPaul uh, in a bit, hopefully, but I want to talk about Tammy Faye. And I will be honest, Fenton, you know, I didn't grow up in the US and I, I didn't know much about Tammy Faye. And of course, I saw the amazing film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, you know, two years ago. I mean, she's amazing. And tell us about your relationship with her, because I believe you were friends. And of course, you work together as well, but you were also friends. Yeah. I think it, it's very hard not to be friends with Tammy. And I love the fact that you just referred to Tammy in the present tense. And I think this is actually a really significant point because Tammy, in addition to being a lovely person, she loves the camera and TV because it was a way to touch people and communicate with people. And even though what she's been, she's passed on now, what, 10 or more years, she kind of lives on because she, she just spoke TV so fluently and, you're able to see her and know who she was and what she was like, even though she's no longer alive. And one of the aspects of Tammy's magic was that she was exactly as she was on screen as off screen. You know, when we made the documentary around 2000, people were like, oh, well, what's she really like? You know, imagining that behind this TV presence could only be some kind of unbelievable bitch, you know? <laughs> and um, that wasn't the case at all. That wasn't her. And then, you know, years later, Jessica Chastain made the movie of the documentary. And we said to her, look, Jessica, you don't have to, you don't have to come to us for this documentary. You can tell the story without the documentary. And she said, no, I love this documentary. And I want to make a movie version of this documentary because I really want people to see what Tammy was saying and that, and the message that she was, that she came with. And, and the message was simply that she's, you know, TV is a way to touch people. And she was very accepting of of one and all. You know, a lot of Christian televangelists are very anti-gay. They're always telling people that we're sinners and we're going to burn in the fires of eternal damnation. But not Tammy Faye. You know, Tammy Faye said, I am a drag queen. And um, she was right about that, you know. And she was a very, uh, she was a, an amazing person, truly, really. It was a privilege to have met her and known her and... I think about her every day, actually. Oh, that's the... And, and you know, the impressive thing about Tammy Faye is, again, talking personally here, that even if she came out today, I think it would still be quite impressive. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, we're in a different world now. Everything's accepted. I mean, not really, right? I mean, and talking about drag, I know in the US, there's, there's a little bit of a backlash going on. And it's, you know, it's more important than ever as well, sometimes the shows you do, for example. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it... Uh... 
a few steps forward and then a couple of steps backwards. Look, the, the good news is that, the, you know, these these periodic attempts by the radical right to turn the clock back, to take us back in time, will not work because the very idea is absurd. You can't go backwards. And um, we've seen this time and time again in history. You know, dictators, autocrats have, have tried to force people to go back to the way it was. It just won't happen. I mean, the tragedy is there will be a lot of pain and suffering, but which is why I think it's important to fight back against these measures. And we are, you know, we've launched um, a drag defense fund with the ACLU. The latest episode of Drag Race here in the States had Wig Loose the Musical, which is all about a, a drag in a, in a town where it's been banned. And the funny thing about that is, you know, that was written and shot over a year ago because We've seen this coming. You know, the whole Trump era is not over by any means. And um, drag stands as the uh, uh, as the opposite of all that kind of stuff, because drag welcomes everybody. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, let's talk about RuPaul's Drag Race. I mean, the success of the show is incredible. Uh, in fact, I know one of the drags in the Swedish uh, Drag Race is a, yeah. is a fellow Brazilian, Fontana. I was very excited to see him there. But it, it, it's, it's incredible. It's a worldwide phenomenon. It doesn't matter if you're in the UK, in Brazil, Sweden. And again, tell us about you, the relationship with RuPaul, because of course, it predates much before, actually, the first season of Drag Race. Indeed, it does. But I just have to say, Fernando, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Drag Race Brazil is is uh, in production. Oh, that, so that's that's, that's exciting, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and I think at this point we're in there are 17 versions of Drag Race, wow. and World of Wonder. We kind of, in one way or another, co-produce them all. So because we really want the show to keep its unique feeling and be true to every country. The show is not really a franchise in the sense that wherever it lands, it's the same thing. We try to make the show really authentic and responsive to the drag culture in that community. But Rue, yes, I mean, my gosh, Rue, meeting Rue, Randy and I were on tour in the South in, with our band, uh, The Pop Tarts. And that's where we met Rue for the first time. And You know, one of those rare moments in life where you're like, oh, my gosh, RuPaul is a star. And the great thing is Ru knew and knows, knew he was a star as well. So we were like, it was it was sort of a sort of, what is the word? It was a milestone moment. Like, we knew that after that, we didn't really think we were going to be pop stars anymore. So, but we knew Ru would, would break through. And um, we've had the pleasure of working together ever since. So, uh, you know we go way back, you know, to our days in the East Village in New York. So crazy, really. Even knowing that Rue is a star, I mean, were you surprised by any chance about how each season it became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? Well, I mean, I would like to say no, but the, the truth is yes, of course, because, you know, so it takes so much work to make a, a TV show, even though, you know, TV gets slagged off for all sorts of things. It actually takes a lot of work. And so you want every show to succeed and find an audience. And most of the time that does not happen. So when it did happen and when it has happened with Drag Race, it's a lovely feeling and very satisfying. And um, you know what I think? I think it says that, it, it says what we've believed all along. 
that drag is not, yes, drag may be made and created by LGBTQ plus people, but it is not only for an LGBTQ plus audience. Yeah, and this is the thing that we've done battle with our entire careers, the misperception that a niche community is only of niche interest. And yet, time and time again, we see that every hit on television, whatever the show, whatever kind of genre, it's always very specific. So that thing of, you could say, if you're an executive, you could say, oh, but it's a niche idea. And, and I guess anything is a niche idea until it's a hit. But the fact is, hits are only made with specific ideas. You know, it's, it's a very frustrating catch-22. Look, for years, they said that the golden rule in television was music doesn't work on TV, you know? And then we have American Idol and The Voice and The Mass Singer, like all these people who make these rules and say, this won't work. This is only going to appeal to a few people. The one thing you can say is that all wrong pretty much all the time. <laughs> but of course, you have to persuade them somehow against against their better judgment to make the show. And so I am just so thrilled and happy that Drag Race got away, you know. That's an excellent point. An excellent point. And again, Fenton, coming back to what you said, that it's not just a franchise. I mean, I must agree. So, for example, I live here in the United Kingdom. I know you're British as well. It does have a different feel, actually, the British uh, version of Drag Race. And I think you did this perfectly with the guests, with the uh, thematics as well, because a lot of people were concerned, oh, would it translate well? And I think you mentioned that in the book, but I think it was done at perfection. I mean, you're a Brit. Maybe you helped a little bit as well. <laughs> Well, thank you. No, Randy and I spent a lot of time in the UK before Drag Race, and we loved, we've always loved British drag. You know, we'd go to the Vauxhall Tavern and see Lily Savage and the Divine David. And so we just love British drag, and it is it is different to US drag. Nevertheless, you know, it took about six or seven years to get the show picked up in the UK. And it wasn't just like one meeting, it was dozens of meetings and, you know, many times going to back to the same place saying, what about Drag Race? What about Drag Race? And um, boy, oh boy, it was the toughest sell. It really was, which is just great. To, uh, you know, there you go. And it's on the BBC <laughs> and it's on the BBC as well. <laughs> well, I love that it's on the BBC. <laughs> yeah, me because too. In my wildest dreams, I think it's the best, the best possible place for it. Because also you know, around the world, people look at the BBC and think, oh, well, if the BBC is doing it, so that's that's a good thing. Fenton, of course, I have to mention this. I actually, you know, didn't know before the Drag Race, but you directed Party Monster. You've done also a documentary about the theme. I absolutely love that film. Uh, so tell us about what's the inspiration for Party Monster? Because you were telling me that you were with Repo in the nightlife in New York. So were you there at the time with the club kids? And I asked this because when I saw the film, I it was it's one of my favorite films, I have to say. Thank you so much. I love that. Uh, thank you. Yes, Randy and I knew Michael Alec. We would, part of our hustle, you know, we would DJ at Danceteria and Michael Alec appeared one day as a busboy. He, he wasn't a very good busboy, but he was very sweet. And we watched and as he went from, from that to the leader of this whole kind of subculture that became a national phenomena. And then, of course, the spiral into addiction and the, the the murder. So we were sort of we were sort of following we weren't there so much. I mean we did have day jobs at this point. We had to <laughs> we couldn't be hanging out with the club kids 
But we always loved the club kids as a as a concept and, and an idea. And always wanted to make a film about them, actually. And uh, so we we did a documentary and then sort of felt we hadn't quite something about it still eluded our grasp. And we just imagined Macaulay Culkin as Michael Ehrlig, and that was enough to write the script. James St. James, who was Michael's kind of partner in, not crime, but kind of fellow club kid leader, uh, he wrote this amazing book, Disco Bloodbath. And so we took that book, we took the documentary, and we wrote the script for Macaulay Culkin, who had retired and had no interest in making a movie. So that was a little bit messed up but uh Seth Green came along and said I have to play James St. James and was very persuasive in getting Macaulay to reconsider and they both had a blast you know they loved doing the film and the best soundtrack of all time as well I have to I have to add um, well, there's, a, there's a Pop-Tart song on there too so in, <laughs> it all paid off in the end you know exactly <laughs> Fenton besides the great book which is out uh now as well. I want to know about your plans for 2023. I mean, you just told me about Drag Race Brazil, but uh, what other projects do you have at the moment as well? Because it seems that you, you're on expansion mode. <laughs> yeah, well, we are doing more drag races, yes. Because, I, you know, I just think sort of geopolitically, this is an important time. And I think the message of Drag Race is a message we need to hear to It sounds grandiose, but, you know, I, I think at a, a time where the sort of world seems to be leaning right and, and wanting to embrace dictators and strongmen, this is not the way to go. And, you know, Drag Race is a, presents an alternative. Anyway, we also uh, are doing several projects with Ronan Farrow. We did, we turned his podcast uh, based on his book, Catch and Kill, which tells the story of the Harvey Weinstein case and mm. how he broke that story. We're doing several new projects with Ronan that haven't been announced yet, but uh, documentary projects. And we, Renny and I love documentaries. So that's our, not our first love, but, you know, we love to do them when we can. Amazing. Well, I'll keep following all the new projects as well. And and that party monster thing on Drag Race. Let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that. Um, we do actually, we have actually been developed. We... Um, After Michael Aleg was released from prison, we followed him for about five years filming. So we have all this, like, we we want to do a, a Club Kids documentary series, really. And so it's just finding the time to put that all together because the material is amazing of watching someone like Michael, who'd been in prison for 17 years, rightly so, but watching him try to adapt to life outside of prison, it's Unfortunately, as you probably know, he died a couple of years ago of an overdose. So it's not really a story with a happy ending. But, you know, that's something we'll be working on too. Thank you very much, Fenton. Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality, from Tammy Faye to RuPaul's Drag Race, is published now internationally and is available in all good UK bookstores now. And now another stock favorite, Bon Appetit magazine. The title recently published their travel issue. As these days most of us travel to go to a specific restaurant or bar, this issue is more important than ever. From Portugal to Miami, it's all in there. 
A pleasure to speak with Dawn Davis. Welcome back to The Stack. She's the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit. I also spoke to Jennifer Hope Choi, editor of the title, on her story about the Appalachia region in the U.S. Every April we do our travel issue, and it's an opportunity to, you know, publish stories about destinations that we think people should travel to, are traveling to, in search of adventure, both outdoor adventure, museums, culture, etc., but also, of course, food. The Bon Appetit Reader travels and is already booking restaurant reservations, thinking about food and open-air markets, and so it's really fun for us to merge food and travel in our April issue, although we do it throughout the year, we have a column called The Getaway, which we publish throughout the year. But in April, we have several stories that are about food. And before I go uh, to Jennifer to talk about her amazing story as well, let's talk about the cover because I love it. It wasn't the most obvious one, perhaps, but it was so special. I don't know. T tell us a bit more because it was it's a beautiful. I'm, I'm sure you can describe it better than me. Yeah, absolutely. So the process at Bon Appetit is my art team gives me several images to choose from. And often we talk about it in advance of, you know, even while we're shooting food from the recipes. So we'll say this is a candidate. So you talked about that cardamom cake, for example. Mm. I might be looking at that recipe as it comes across my desk. And then I'll look at some early photos of it in pre-prep and I'll think, ooh, that could be a cover potential. So we had identified a couple of recipes. And then, of course, with Portugal, which is one of our stories, we thought we're going to get something from Portugal that's going to be beautiful. And then I saw this fish, which is from Itame, a restaurant in Miami, which we named Food City of the Year this year. And I just, it was so stunning. It's fish hanging at a restaurant. There's this bright, beautiful red one almost in the center, flanked by two other beautiful fish. It's just organic and lovely. It reminds me in a way of a kind of old school gourmet elegance, but it's also very modern and chic, I think. I thought it was uh, modern and chic as well. And Jennifer, let's bring you here uh, to the story. You wrote a story about the Appalachian region of the U.S., which I've got to be honest, I didn't know much about it. And, and I think it's quite interesting because I believe this will be it's the first part of a special series on American regional cuisine, which I think it's an excellent idea. But tell us a bit more about the region because I didn't know anything actually about uh, their cuisine before, which which is good because I want to know more. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, really, hats off to Dawn. She wanted to do this ambitious series on American regional cuisine and wanted to kick it off, especially with Appalachia. And I'm super grateful for her uh, making that choice. What we really wanted to do is advocate for the most honest rendering of this place. And I learned a lot about it, too, in the process. You know, it's at its broadest 13 states as far south as northern part of Mississippi and as far north as parts of New York. But people mostly consider it by the central part of its region, which includes like eastern Kentucky and um, western North Carolina, West Virginia, and east Tennessee. And so as an outsider, I was very conscious in the fact that I wanted to make sure we included the best version of Appalachia, which would be like, you may not know about this place, but you really should. And here's a fresh take that shows a side of it that is really genuine to the people who've been fighting to, to weather the changes that have been constant throughout the decades and who are really devoted to advocating for this place. And so for me, I started with looking at a map 
I identified all the different places and made sure that I reached out to all kinds of people within the food community, Appalachian foodways advocates, community advocates, authors, poets. Uh, we got the amazing poet laureate from Kentucky, Crystal Wilkinson, who's got a food book coming out. It was really important for me to have contributors who weren't the normal go-tos that people already associate with the region, but who have deep ties. So someone like Crystal and someone like the chef of Ning Juniors in Asheville, North Carolina, Silver Ayokovotsi, who is just incredible. And at their restaurant, they feature Filipinx and North Carolinian cooking traditions together. And it's just really showing the future of Appalachia, which is so much more diverse than a lot of people know it to be. And so in this package, we really brought together road trip itineraries that have a food focus. We have beautiful literary moments um, with these odes to the region and an incredible introduction by Laura Smith, who's a community advocate, who really talked about how the region has been affected by climate change and how people are staying and subverting, but also, you know, evolving and and honoring traditions that have been a part of Appalachia for a very long time. Well, yeah, I love that. It was a fantastic story. And again, I didn't know about the region, which I find it even more interesting. And Don, coming back to you, why Miami? I mean, I can kind of have a feeling because I think there's a lot of buzz in Miami as well. And of course, when there is buzz, the food world goes after it as well. So I wanted to think about a food city where if you're going to take one trip and it's really going to be about food, where would it be? And I've been going to Miami for over 20 years pretty regularly. My husband and I actually got married there. And when we went, when we got married, the hotel scene on South Beach was just unfolding and it was just becoming a destination. And you really, you went to South Beach and you pretty much stayed in South Beach unless you had, you know, deep family there, deep family ties there. And over the years, Art Basel, I went to the first Art Basel. That was exciting. Now it's a destination and people go for art. And it seems like everyone is interested in contemporary art. And then, of course, the design district. I've seen the Wynwood and design district area just kind of come of age. And everywhere you go, there is an interesting food scene. Marcus Samuelson opened his restaurant there. Fascinating place, an important part of the city in terms of Black history, in terms of the city's history. And I felt like it has evolved from this place where you literally were kind of in one place to wherever you go, you're going to find fantastic food. It's also an incredibly diverse city. So you're going to find really interesting food and not just, you know, yes, there's delicious Cuban. I was just at uh, Cafe La Trova when I was there in December. It's fantastic. But you're also going to find Japanese Peruvian mix, for example, at Itami, where the cover, where the fish was taken. It's fantastic family team that has Japanese food overlaid with kind of Peruvian influences. So i I just found that every time I went, I was finding something new, something interesting, and something that can really be enjoyed no matter who you're traveling with. You know, if you have teens, if you have picky eaters, if you have adventurous eaters, you're going to find something really beautiful there. I also love the food markets that are that are great. If you want to take a picnic to the beach, there's lots of markets where you can get really beautiful food also from all over the world. So it was a clear winner in my eye, for sure. 
And one thing I would like to ask both of you, uh, perhaps uh, with you, Jennifer, as well. I was mentioning a few, some of the recipes, because, you know, I love recipes. Uh, to be honest, I think it's quite inspiring, you know, something that we can try at home. And I can see there's a passion of the team because both of you knew about the recipes I was talking about. I'm sorry, I forgot if it was Dawn or Jennifer who actually tried the, the coconut and cardamom cake. So it's quite interesting. So you see the passion and, and maybe all the staff at Bon Appetit are good cooks as well. Is it true? <laughs> there are a lot of us who love to cook. In fact, we have a really fun column called, uh, digital column called What the Bon Appetit Editors Cooked This Week. And we can also refer to other recipes and cookbooks, but we often cook from our own archives. And yes, there's a lot of people here. I'm going to just say, speaking of the Appalachia package, the pork shoulder in a sal, which is in the Appalachia package, is fantastic. It's a Philippinex-based recipe. You take... Uh, fried onions and fried garlic mm. and some toasted black rice and you make this rub and you put it on a pork shoulder and just let it cook for five hours. It is mouthwateringly delicious. It was competitive eating at my, I made the mistake of telling my teenager that he could invite a friend. And at one point it was like, are they going to leave any for the four adults? <laughs> they have yet to even take a bite yet. So yeah, we love to cook and often often do cook, you know, the recipes that are passing through my desk. And I'll just tell one other funny story about Miami. I went there in December. I arrived Christmas Eve, impossible to find anything that was open. I literally Googled and found near where I was saying a place called Jaguar Sun. And it said, it's a cocktail bar, super chic, so fun. But I had my two teens with me and my husband and I, you know, we needed to eat. So I ordered some pasta thinking I'm at a cocktail bar. The pasta is just going to be the pasta. It was, I took one bite. I said, this is so fantastic. It's clearly homemade. The sauce was amazing. Didn't think anything of it until the proofs, the, the wires arrive on my desk about what restaurants we're going to include in the Miami package. And one of them is Jaguar Sun with this fantastic pasta. Chris Morocco, our food director, goes and picks recipes. And lo and behold, this pork ragu is in our recipe package and it's in the April issue of Bon Appetit. Super, super delicious. God, I'm quite hungry now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's my goal. That's what I live with. <laughs> You're going to One say something, I, Jennifer. I'd love to mention the fact that our food editors are so incredibly thoughtful when they're working with outside developers, especially for the Appalachia package. Shilpa Uskukovic, um, she was our food editor on the feature, and she really takes incredible care in speaking to every single recipe developer that we seek out, um, really getting their personal point of view and advocating for their character, their take, their style to come through as we develop the recipes that they want to contribute. And so with the pork in a sal, it was really about like Silver's point of view, and they wanted to feature this forbidden rice from one uh, Lee's One Fortune Farm, which is this incredible farm by a Hmong farmer who is a part of a, a refugee community from Laos, um, this Hmong population in Western North Carolina that's thriving and has all these different farms. And Lee's One Fortune Farm is one incredible place that, that provides all this wonderful Asian produce and, and grains. And so Silver really wanted to focus on that and also combined a little bit of their past, thinking about grilling in the Batangas and in the Philippines. And so we really got to these amazing places with each of the recipes. And not only are they super delicious, but they convey something personal from each contributor. 
That's amazing. And I'd like to ask, what are the plans, you know, for the brand in 2023? Because I think last time we spoke on, you know, I think there was still a little bit of COVID talk in the air, but I think, which was difficult times for, you know, for people that work in the hospitality industry, in restaurants and bars. But I think this is kind of slowly going away. And um, how do you see the industry and Bon Appetit as well for later in the year? Yeah, that's right. You had me on very early uh, when I just got to Bon Appetit and you were so generous in in covering our, I believe it was our 1971 package and talking about design and it was really fantastic. We weren't able at that point that year to go out and do our best new restaurants, but we've brought that franchise back. So our scouts are already on the road looking at, um, speaking of travel, like the restaurants we're traveling to, the best restaurants that they have discovered that have opened in 2022. We're excited about that. We are actually going to do our first live event speaking about, you know, what is hopefully we'll, we can safely say a kind of post COVID error or, or not in um, an emergency COVID situation on May 15th, we're going to do dinner SOS. We have a fun podcast called dinner SOS where people call us with their dinner emergencies or their dinner party planning issues. Uh, There's always some, there's always something, right? <laughs> we put Chris Morocco, our, our food director, uh, and one other recipe developer usually on the case, and they help solve the issue. It could be like, I have a nut allergy, someone who doesn't like cilantro, and also a dairy allergy. What should I make? And then we come through our archives, we come through our app, and we find we come up with something, and it's kind of a contest, and we see who's going to win. Um, so we're going to do that live on May 15th at Symphony Space. Chris is going to be joined by Marcus Samuelson, who has his new restaurant, Have Mar. Ruth Reichel, who has a new documentary out called Farm and Country, it'll be coming out. Uh, and also Padma Lakshmi, who, of course, is on has her own show, Taste of the Nation, as well as Top Chef. So we're really excited about that. On our video series, we're launching something called Street Eats. It's a travel series. And we're going to start out in Hong Kong, where we have someone named Lucas Sin, who's a skilled young chef behind one of New York's best new Chinese-American restaurants, delivering unprecedented access to Hong Kong's street food scene. So we're really excited about that. And it's the first in a series. And the travel issue for Bon Appetit is out now. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at monaco.com. And before we go, a little song for you. It's from that film I mentioned, one of my favorites, Party Monster. The song is called Money, Success, Fame, Glamour by Felix the Housecat, the Pop-Tarts, Macaulay Culkin, Seth Green and Chloe Sevigny. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thank you very much.